Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to another evening of Let's Talk About It with Jenny White. We're going to start the show like this. Hold on, and here we go. Let's see. We're going to, I got a lot going on right now, but we're going to, we're going to get started right now and talk about the show. Hold on. Good evening and welcome to the Let's Talk About the Jitty White Show. On our show, we discuss topics from A to Z, and our listeners call from Singapore to Montana, from California to New York. Our goal is to inform our listeners, and our listeners inform us as well. Let's start the show. All right, welcome back, welcome back. I'm your host, Maceo Coleman, and we've got the hostess with the mostest, Ms. Jenny White. You with us, with Jenny White? Yes, I am. How you doing? You want to play? You want to play this disclaimer? Huh? Yes. All right, go for it. What, what is it? What? Okay. This broadcast of the PJC Media Network seeks to Did present wholesome thought-provoking, and entertaining content. However, the views expressed by the hosts of PJC Media are theirs and theirs alone. They do not reflect the views of this network or its affiliates. Please utilize listener discretion. All right, well, that's good enough. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Let's Talk About It with Jenny White Show. Each week, we feature different topics concerning issues that sometimes can be difficult to talk about. These issues concern children and adults who may be autistic, have Asperger's, or have mental disorders of any kind. We will discuss law enforcement and how they interact with these persons. Now, let's start the show. All right. Well, that's good. I was feeling a little technologically challenged, so. All right. So how are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. TGIF. Okay. You're talking about black fortunes? Yeah, we're going to talk about some black millionaires today. And uh, so this should be an interesting show. So uh, what we're going to talk about is Immediately following emancipation, there were approximately 4 million millionaires in the United States, and only six of them were black. So between... Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, six of them were black. Uh, So between 1830 and 1927, as the last generation of blacks were born into slavery, uh, were reaching maturity, a small group of industrious, tenacious, and daring men and women broke new ground to attain the highest levels of financial success. Mary Ellen Pleasant used her gold rush wealth to further the cause of abolitionist John Brown, 
Robert Reed Church, became the largest landowner in Tennessee. Hannah Elias, the mistress of a New York City millionaire, used the property her lover gave her to build an empire in Harlem. Orphan and self-taught chemist Annie Turnbull Malone developed the first national brand of hair care products. Mississippi school teacher O.W. Gurley developed a piece of Tulsa, Oklahoma, into a town for the wealthy black professionals and craftsmen that would become later become known as Black Wall Street. And although Madam C.J. Walker was given the title of America's first black female millionaire, she was not. She was the first, however, to flaunt and openly claim her wealth, which was, uh, as they say, very dangerous in, in that time. And uh, nearly all of the unforgettable personalities in this amazing collection were often attacked, demonized, or swindled out of their wealth. Black fortunes illuminates as never before the birth of the black business titan. So that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. All right. So uh, the introduction, uh, a lot of this information is coming from a book called Black Fortunes, written by Shomari Wills. And um, I found it to be quite interesting. And I wanted to share this information so that uh, we could have a better understanding of some of the uh, wealth that has been created uh, from people that, like they say, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, and there were instances where people didn't have boots. So it's hard to pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you don't have boots. But... Hmm. I'm going to start with the story of the first black millionaire. On a warm okay, night. There. Did you see someone that wanted to say something? Uh, well, I see somebody who has their hand raised. I guess before we get started, we could take a caller, see uh, what they have going on. All right. Thank you, caller. Welcome to the Let's Talk About It with Jenny White show. You have a question, comment? No, no question, no comment. I wanted to say hello to everyone. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm highly right, so enjoying this topic. And I, I'm wondering, just as a suggestion, could we do this um, Black History Month? Well, that's and what I'm we have. Yeah, Yeah, because we're not going to be able to, you know, go through everybody, you know, in depth uh, on a one show. So, no, that would be um, that'd be great. I appreciate it. And uh, anybody else that might have any suggestions uh, for Black History Month as well, even though Black History Month for us is every month. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Every 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 Friday. Right. So. uh, I got to put you guys on hold. My, my Kentucky Fried Chicken just came. All right. Do your no, thing. We'll be here. No. All right. We want you to uh, come in with a black person. How about that? Uh, I can We're do that, out. ma'am. I can find someone and then tell Mace who it is. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, I'm gonna get started. Y'all got me. I'm ready. All right. Okay, I'm so, ready. I'm walking yeah. to the door. Okay. Yeah. All right. Do your Bye. thing. Whenever you uh, whenever you want, you know, chime back in and push the one. We'll, you know, we'll we'll tune you in. Let's go. All right. All right. So, the first black millionaire on a warm night in 1841, William Alexander. Liedesdorf sat on the porch of an old white house covered in vines in New Orleans with his fiancée, 14th. As she leaned on Liedesdorf, she could tell that something was bothering him. 14th looked into his heavy-litten auburn eyes. What is troubling you, William, she asked, looking up at him with her big blue eyes framed by blonde curls. Against his better judgment, he confided in her. He stammered as he tried to get the words out. I'm a, he finally told her, Hortense, eyes filled with tears. As she took in his confession, she scanned his features. He had a round, pale face with a straight nose, ruddy cheeks, piercing, deep-set brown eyes, bushy sideburns, and curly brown hair, that he wore slick back with oil. As he cried, he confessed that he was from the Virgin Islands, the son of a Jewish Danish, Danish sailor and merchant and a black island woman. He had been passing for white since he had arrived in New Orleans from the Caribbean as a boy, rising from work working on the docks to commanding a ship in his mid-twenties. Hortense plunged her face into the sleeve of his velvet jacket and sobbed heavily. My father will never let us marry, and I cannot deceive or disobey him. Our dream has ended, but I will love you as long as I live, he said. Go, you must go, Hortense told Liedersdorf. My heart will always belong to you. Run, William. I must tell my father, she shouted after him as he retreated into the night. Hortense came from an aristocratic New Orleans family that owned slaves and would strongly disapprove of Hortense marrying a man of color. After Liedersdorf left, she went inside the house and told her father about him. And since her father announced that the wedding was off, dragged her to the door of her room and pushed her inside. You will never see that nigger again, he swore, turning the key and locking her in. The next day, Liedersdorf received a package from Hortense's father with the engagement ring inside and decided to leave New Orleans. He sold everything he owned and purchased a ship. The day before he was to leave the city, he was walking down Canal Street and was passed by a funeral procession. He stood in the doorway of a store and watched the mourners go by. He spotted Hortense's mother, father, and sister in one of the carriages, and his heart sank. That night, there was a knock at the door. When he opened it, he was greeted by a priest. The man handed Liedersdorf a small gold cross which he immediately recognized as Hortense's. Hortense's last words were that she wanted you to have this, the priest told him. 
1841, Liedersdorf left New Orleans. He sailed to California, then a remote Mexican territory. As he stepped off the gangplank of his ship in Yerba Buena Cove, he saw a black, uh, backwater of thick forests and green hills dotted with Indian communities, military forts, cattle farms, and Catholic missions. Deciding he would live openly as a mixed-race man, he settled in, in San Francisco and started an import-export company shipping tallow and animal pelts from California to Hawaii and Alaska. Once that business turned a profit, he used the money to open a general store, a warehouse, a lumberyard, and a shipbuilding business. He also built San Francisco's first hotel. San Francisco had very few inhabitants at the time. Liedersdorf, still trying to mend his broken heart, seemed to relish the isolation. His only friends were his employees, a bartender at his hotel and his black laundress. At night, they would go down to the beach on the northern coast of San Francisco to swim. Sometimes they just sit on the rocks, looking up at the moon and talking until the sun came up, listening to the waves crash on the shore. In 1844, Liedersdorf, then Mexican California's most prominent resident, was granted citizenship by the Mexican government. In return for his allegiance, Mexico gave him more than 35,000 acres of undeveloped land. His acquisition made him the largest landowner in the area. Liedersdorf built a large mansion in the hills of San Francisco, which he referred to with tongue-in-cheek as the cottage. His house was a New Orleans-style home with dozens of rooms, a wraparound porch, and the state's only flower garden. His estate functioned as a de facto U.S. embassy in Mexican California territory. A convivial host, he received generals and politicians at his residence. He served his guests beer and meat and offered them cigars. He apologized for not having better whiskey, which was hard to come by in the West. We get what we can, he would tell them. Would you like some tequila? He spoke with a strange accent, a mix of his father's Danish, his mother's Caribbean, Portois, and a Southern drawl. In 1846, when Mexico went to war with the United States, Liedersdorf switched his allegiance to the American and was appointed United States Vice Consul to Mexico. After the Mexican-American War ended and the U.S. annexed California, the U.S. government made Liedersdorf the treasurer of the territory. In 1847, he built California's first public school, and a horse racing track for the citizens' entertainment. In 1848, when gold was discovered in the Sacramento Valley, the value of his property and business skyrocketed to over $1 million, making him the first African-American to achieve a net worth of more than a $1 million in the history of the United States. One spring night, Liedersdorf retired to bed in his quarters on the top floor of his mansion. The next morning, doctors pronounced him dead of brain fever. 
Flags in San Francisco were hung at half-mast, and Californians wept for the loss of one of their most beloved. After his death, Joseph Folsom, state investor, traveled to the Virgin Islands and found Liedersdorf estranged mother, Anna Marie Sparks, his sole known heir. He convinced her to sign over her son's property for a payment of 75000 which is worth $2.1 million today. The Liedersdorf estate was worth more than $1.4 million, which is worth $38 million today. So he bought a $38 million estate for $2.1 million. And with the stroke of a pen, the fortune and legacy of America's first black millionaire was stolen. So that <laughs> is just one story of black fortune in America from a mixed race black man whose father was a Danish sailor and mother was uh, Caribbean from the Virgin Islands. And how he was passing as white and was getting ready to marry a white woman. It's kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, says that one night he was found dead of brain fever. I mean, you know, kind of sounds like Michael Jackson, you know. You know, yeah. he, was ha- he was having problems sleeping and, you know, then they... uh Gave him some uh, propofol to help him sleep a little better. And uh, when they did that, uh, he took a nap forever, too. So uh, you can't trust people. You can't trust people. But uh, that was just one of the stories. Uh, There uh, are some other stories, and I'm going to... Switch well, gears excuse and me. You're saying that he was sick, and that's what uh, he died with. But was the doctor said he had, he had brain fever, so yeah, he was sick. I don't know. He might have had an aneurysm, you know, stroke. You know, kind of sound like that. I don't know. I just, you know, I just be a little suspicious. Um, you know. They didn't say anything so he, uh, happened to him um, under suspicion. They just said that he went to bed and he died. So it sounded like he had so a stroke. He, did he had a uh, wife or a child? No, his only uh, heir was his mother, his estranged mother. So it, it didn't sound like they had a a real close relationship. But she got the money. Well, she signed over his estate. So she got what the man paid her, but, you know, he gave her for a state that was worth almost $40 million. He gave her two, two million. So, you know, she got robbed, which was probably more money than she had ever seen. And, you know, just like a whole lot of fortunes, you know, the white man um, knew, you know, he knew what it was worth. And she signed it over and he took it. So, so I mean, it's a lot of stories like that. But, you know, next we're going to yeah. go into uh, 
a story about Mary Ellen Pleasant. She was born August 19, 1814, and she passed away January 11, 1904. Um, so she was 90. Um, Mary Ellen Pleasant was born on August 19, 1814 in Virginia and spent her early years in Nantucket, Massachusetts. She worked as a bond servant to the Hussey family, an abolitionist family. She later married James Smith, a wealthy former plantation owner and abolitionist. Mary Ellen and James worked on the Underground Railroad. After Smith's death four years later, Mary Ellen continued her work as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And then Mary Ellen married John James Pleasant around 1848 to avoid trouble with slavers for their abolitionist work. The couple moved to San Francisco, California in April 1852. That seemed to be the safest place for black people, I guess, back in them days. <laughs> California, I guess, it was still a, still a part of uh, Mexico. Uh, Miss Pleasant established several restaurants for California miners. The first name, The Case and Heiser. With the help of Clerk Thomas Bell, Miss Pleasant amassed a fortune by 1875, through her investments in various businesses, by 1875, she also helped to establish the Bank of California. Pleasant earned her title as the mother of California's early civil rights movement, establishing the local Underground Railroad. She finally, she financially supported John Brown from 1857 to 1859. In the 1860s and 1870s, Ms. Mrs. Pleasant brought several civil rights lawsuits in California, especially against the trolley companies, most of which she won. During the 1880s, a smear campaign by the widow of Thomas Bell damaged Mrs. Pleasant's reputation. Local newspapers began to taunt her with the pejorative title, Mammy, which she reportedly hated. She never recovered her prestige from this campaign. Mary Ellen Pleasant died on January 4, 1904. So that's uh, Miss Mary Ellen Pleasant. She went to California and um, did very well for herself. She was a self-made millionaire and an abolitionist during the gold rush era. And they um, they were discovering gold out in, in California parts. Uh, and it says, uh, read some more stuff about her, because she was hailed the mother of civil rights in California. She was a self-made millionaire and leading abolitionist during the gold rush era. And according to some historians, Pleasant likely played a key role in helping to finance John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in Virginia, an unsuccessful 
revolt by black slaves and white abolitionists in 1859. Pleasant also gave shelter to fugitive slave Archie Lee when he was on the run. Research indicates that Pleasant was most likely born a slave, but got her freedom at an early age. She worked on the Underground Railroad as a young adult, ushering enslaved people out of the South and into the Northern states. Like many others seeking their fortunes during the gold rush, Pleasant and her husband moved to San Francisco. And while working as a cook, Pleasant eavesdropped on the conversations of, of wealthy patrons in the hopes of overhearing valuable nuggets of information. She took what she learned to help her build a substantial fortune and eventually became one of the richest women in the city. Pleasant was an astute investor whose portfolio included real estate, railroads, restaurants, and boarding houses. Pleasant's wealth, however, could not shield her from racism. In 1866, a streetcar conductor in San Francisco refused to let her board because she was black. Outraged, Pleasant sued. Case went all the way to the California Supreme Court. In a historic decision, the court ruled that segregation on streetcars was illegal in California. However, the Supreme Court reversed the damages Pleasant had been awarded in a lower court ruling. Yeah, go figure that. Okay. So welcome to Ms. Mary Ellen Pleasant. <laughs> all right. So next on our list, we're going to talk about Mr. Robert Reed Church. Now, Mr. Well, can Robert I Reed... just say, I, I just wanted to say that uh, women, especially black women, she couldn't do a lot of stuff years back because she was black and of course she could be in the kitchen you know and do and watch uh, over the white children but some of them some of them like um what's her name with the hair thing I forgot it that quick Madam C.J. Walker? Yeah. But it, it's not a lot. And now they're trying to do better. And that's really, um, give me a year that you were doing that. Um, well, she was born... Between 1814 No, not when she was born. When she was doing. Around 1875. No, around 1875, around that time. And this is 2024. And we still trying to keep women back. Not only that. But black folks. Well, women didn't get the right to vote till what the twenties, nineteen twenties. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, women's suffrage. So 
Yeah, I mean, you know, black, being black and then being a woman. I mean, it was uh, double jeopardy. So, and they're still having problems with them. And I think the women were doing uh, a little better, I think, before Trump jumped up and uh, people started going crazy again, you know, with the your black thing. So I, I don't know uh, if that's going to ever stop. It's not. It's not. So, in the meantime, we're going to move on to Robert Reed Church, who was mm-hmm. born June 18, 1839, and he passed away August 29, 1912. He was an American entrepreneur. He was a businessman and landowner in Memphis, Tennessee who began his rise during the American Civil War. He was the first African-American millionaire in the South. Church built a reputation for great wealth and influence in the business community. He Did founded, you have the year for him? What, the year he was born, say, the year he died? No, no, for him having all that money. Uh, I haven't got to it yet. Okay. He was the first African millionaire, African American millionaire in the South, and he built a reputation for great wealth and influence in the business community. He founded Solvent Savings Bank, the first black owned bank in the city, which extended credit to blacks so they could buy homes and develop businesses. As a philanthropist, Church used his wealth to develop a park, playground, auditorium and other facilities for the black community who were excluded by state-enacted racial segregation from most such amenities in the city. He was the son of a black mother and white father. Church began working as a steward when his father, a steamboat owner, took him along on his route between Memphis and New Orleans. Robert Church bought his first property in Memphis in 1862. He was well established by 1878 to 79. The years of devastating yellow fever epidemics, which resulted in dramatic depopulation in the city. With property devalued, church bought numerous businesses as well as undeveloped land with the long-term view of their appreciation as the city recovered. He built his great wealth on this real estate. He purchased the first $1,000 municipal bond to help the city recover from bankruptcy after it was reduced to a taxing district. In his early life, Robert Reed Church was born a slave in 1839 in Holly Springs, Mississippi. As the son of Emmeline, a black American woman from Virginia. His mother was a slave and his father was Captain Charles B. Church, a white steamship owner from Virginia who operated along the Mississippi River. 
According to family accounts, Emmeline was the daughter of an enslaved Malay, Malagasy princess, and of a white planter from Lynchburg. Robert's mother, Emmeline, died in 1851 when he was 12 years old. His father, Captain Church, began taking Robert along on his river journeys to and from New Orleans. The youth worked as the steward of the steamship's mess hall, picking up business acumen and contacts, including future Louisiana political leader James Lewis. In 1862, Memphis fell to Union troops, and the riverboat where Church was working was seized. Church escaped and began working in Memphis as a stable boy, a salesman's assistant, and shiny shoes before saving enough to open a saloon. He eventually owned a number of businesses along Memphis's Bill Street. In 1860, the black population of the city was 3,000, but it rapidly increased as fugitive slaves fled from rural plantation to union lines in the occupied city. Church had many customers for his businesses and became influential in the developing black community, which reached 20,000 by 1865. That grew from 3,000 in 1860 to 20,000 five years later. The next year, post-war tensions in the city erupted in the Memphis, Memphis riots of 1866 when a white ethnic Irish mob attacked South Memphis, killing 45 blacks and injuring many more and destroying houses, churches, and businesses. The dramatic demographic changes had resulted in competition among ethnic Irish who dominated the city's police and fire departments, decommissioned black Union soldiers who had been stationed nearby and other African-Americans. Church was shot and wounded in his saloon during the riot. A total of two whites died. Of course, all the blacks you know, always kill more blacks than whites. His real estate empire in 1878-79, Church had acquired considerable wealth. Familiar with the high death tolls from the 1873 yellow fever epidemic, he moved his family to safety outside the city during the even worse epidemic of 1878, as well as the following year. As the city was depopulated by the flight of 25,000 people during the 1878 epidemic and death toll of more than 5,000, the land was devalued. Church saw a great opportunity in Memphis real estate and had the resources to buy a property holdings throughout the city. He acquired commercial buildings, some residential housing and bars in the red light district, as well as undeveloped land. It is estimated that later years he was able to collect approximately $6,000 a month in rent from his properties. That's not bad money now, but back in 1879, <coughs> He was cleaning up. So with his immense wealth, Church funded the development of high-quality facilities for black Memphians who were excluded by the state law of racial segregation from many white institutions at the time. He developed a public park, a playground, a concert hall, and an auditorium. 
Church used the property for related philanthropy. He helped sponsor graduation ceremonies, political rallies, and shows in the parks for the city's African Americans. He also hosted and funded a free annual Thanksgiving meal for the black poor. In 1906, Church Josea T. Settle, M. L. Clay, and T. H. Hayes established the Solvent Savings Bank, Memphis's first black bank, and Church served as founding president. He ensured that blacks could gain access to loans for businesses and homes to advance their lives. So Robert Reed Church, in his personal life, not much is known about his personal life. He rarely if ever wrote personal correspondence and never made a public speech, despite his wide popularity and influence in Memphis. Church married three times. His first marriage in 1857 to Margaret Pico was not considered legal, as both Church and his wife were enslaved. His second wife, Louisa Ayers, was of mixed race, born into slavery. They both supported education for their two children, a daughter, Mary Eliza Church, 1863-1954, and son, Thomas Ayers Church, 1867-1937. to Their daughter, Mary Church Terrell, was one of the first black American women to earn a college degree. She became a teacher, then a principal, as well as a civil rights activist. In 1909, she was a founding member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. And in 1896, the first black woman to be appointed to the school board of a major city in Washington, D.C. Church and Louisa divorced. He then married Anne Anna Susan Wright. They also had a son, Robert Reed Church, Jr., born 1885 to 1952, and daughter, Annette Lane Church, born 1887 to 1975. Robert, Jr. became a businessman, taking over his father's enterprises. He became politically influential, establishing the Lincoln League in 1916 to work to register black voters fundraise to help cover poll taxes. He had to have poll taxes to vote and advocate for the interests of African Americans in the Republican Party. Within a short time, he signed up 10,000 new black voters in Memphis and worked with E.H. Crump and his machine politics. Church Jr. served as an advisor to Republican presidents in the 1920s, but declined any political appointments. The senior church generally chose to stay outside the politics of his era, which enabled him to maintain influence among both white and black Memphians. He was chosen as a delegate for William McKinley to the 1900 Republican Convention. Church died August 29, 1912, after a brief illness, and he is buried at Elmwood Cemetery on the south side of downtown Memphis. In 1953, the city of Memphis hosted a demonstration of fire equipment during which 
the home Robert Church had built for his family in a wealthy mixed-race neighborhood was burnt to the ground. The event was an act of revenge on the part of Memphis Mayor Edward Hull Boss Crump for the church family's black voters' right activism. They burnt down his house that he built for his family in 1953. The tri-state defender called the burning of the church home an act of infamy. In 1955, the house and the surrounding neighborhood were paved over by the city to make way for public housing complexes designated exclusively for African-Americans. Hmm. How nice of those good white people. Burn down down the house and then pave over, pave it over by the city and make public housing complexes. Hmm. But I bet that, I bet all that territory and real estate is prime real estate now and they probably want it back. That's how you gentrify the community. Give it away to black people. And then once the value goes up, take it back. <laughs> yeah, there's uh well, we can uh take a break for a minute, Jenny. You wanna um uh choose a couple commercials and take a break and we'll be right back after these messages. Is your food bland and you want to spice it up? Does it taste like something is missing? What's missing is my seasoning, Butch's bodacious seasoning, all-purpose seasoning, good on absolutely everything but ice cream. I'm Linda Porter president and CEO of Butcher's Bodacious Seasoning. To get the spice back in your life, call me at 313-393-2738. You won't regret it. Thank you. Want to start a business or have tax issues? We know exactly how to handle your individual needs. We personalize each individual and give you the time required to focus on your needs. We audit you before the IRS does. The IRS is not on your side, but we are. We set up companies, do tax preparation, tax and retirement planning, bookkeeping, IRS audits, and reviews. Please call me, Deborah Mitchell, owner of Mitchell & Company, for a free consultation at 248-354-5122. And visit my website, MitchellTexAccounting.com If you are in need of life insurance, auto or home insurance, or need help in getting out of debt, call your helpful insurance agents at Prime Financial Services. Did you know if you add a child rider to your life insurance policy, you can add multiple children for the price of one, starting at $10,000 worth of coverage for under $10. Call today for a free quote at 313 313- Two nine three zero nine seven nine. Mention you heard this ad on this show for a free gift. We're back with Let's Talk About It with Jenny White. 
All right, welcome back, welcome back. We are talking about black fortunes, and we are talking about blacks immediately following the emancipation. There were approximately 4 million millionaires in the United States, and only six of them were black. So um, we're discussing some of the uh, six black people that were very industrious, tenacious, Daring men and women who broke new ground to attain the highest levels of financial success. So the next person on deck, we're talking about Hannah Elias. Now, Hannah Elias was born in 1865 and died in 1938. Now, she was an African-American. Well, she was an American sex worker and landlord who became one of the richest black women in the world during her lifetime. Hannah Elias was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at 1820 Addison Street, one of nine mixed-race children. Her father, Charles Elias, was a Negro with Indian blood in him who ran a large, well-regarded catering operation. Her mother, Mary Elias, was almost white, (laughs) okay, and they sent her to public school in 1884. To attend her sister Hattie's wedding in style, Hannah borrowed a ball gown without permission from her employer, leading to a sentence at Moyamin Singh Prison and her banishment from home. She stole a dress to go to her sister's wedding so that she would be there in style. On her own, supporting herself as a sex worker at a resort owned by Emmeline Truitt in Manhattan's Tenderloin neighborhood. She met wealthy glass factory owner John R. Platt, 45 years her senior. She left the brothel when her twin brother David and suitor Frank P. Satterfield asked her to live with the latter in a boarding house in East Philadelphia. She became pregnant and gave birth at the Blockley Alms House in December 1885 giving the child up for adoption. Now, she had an affair with John R. Platt. After Elias reunited with Platt, he gave her large sums of money, volunteered to start her in the boarding house business at 128 West 53rd Street, where as proprietress, she rented a room to Cornelius Williams. She then moved into a mansion at 236 Central Park West passing as Sicilian or Cuban. Williams later fatally shot city planner Andrew H. Green in front of Green's Park Avenue home, confusing him with Platt. Okay. So she killed a man. She thought it was, uh, sounded like she thought it was a boyfriend. Blackmail case. Mm. When Platt, prodded by his family, accused her of blackmailing him out of $685,385, the affair merited the world's lead story on June 1st, 1904, describing her as his ebony enslaver. Asked about allegations that she had been blackmailed as well, she responded. Somebody in the kitchen? Sound like somebody cooking. (laughs) Oh, okay. I don't know. I hear a lot of pots clanging. 
asked about allegations that she had been blackmailed as well. She responded, I have read in the newspapers that I have been and am frank to say that there must be some truth in a story which is given so much in detail. The novelty of a black woman with the equivalent of tens of millions of dollars living in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in New York caused the seeing New York electric bus tours to make Elias' house a stop. So they uh taking tours. They stopped by our one. They stopped by our house. They passed by our house because uh, she was <laughs> she was a rich, very wealthy black woman and stayed in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in New York. So the bus tour had to point her house out. So Platt initially refused to swear a criminal complaint, but relented, allowing police serving a criminal warrant to break down her door where they were escorted to Elias by her Japanese butler, Kato. At the time, she said, I have no fear. I have done no wrong. And every one of the poor people I have helped is praying for me in the time of my affliction. She was arraigned in Tombs Court on June 10th, 1904, held on $30,000 bail, meeting at the house of R.C. Cooper at 318 West 58th Street and 149 West 43rd Street raised money for her release. When Platt was asked directly about Hannah Elias, he aimed blows at the reporter with his umbrella and shouted, don't talk to me about Hannah Elias. The story spread leading to details, court coverage in the Baltimore Sun, as she took the stand and described how her money was kept in 15 savings banks, as well as houses and lands worth 150000 furniture and plate worth 100000 and jewels valued at much more. After losing his initial court case, the Court of Appeals eventually ruled against Platt, allowing her to keep his gifts. So later in life, in 1906, newspapers reported that Elias evicted white tenants from several apartment buildings on West 135th Street with a note reading, in the future, none but respectable colored families were to occupy the flats. She evicted these white people so she could put black families in there. She was rumored to have continued in this vein, named as a 1912 and a 1912 article titled what? Negroes Crowding Whites. As a purchaser of a $250,000 apartment building at 546 552 Lenox Avenue. However, she disputed these claims through her lawyer, Andrew F. Murray, in 1906. And by 1915, she was living in a penthouse in one of her numerous properties at 501 West 113th Street. She joined forces with noted Harlem developer John Neal, who later left for Europe with her butler, Cato, never to return. Okay, O'Hanna was a bad girl. She okay. was Hannah knew how to play the game. Yeah, she did. She got the money from the rich white man, killed a man, and kept it moving. <laughs> kept it moving. And she said, must have uh, killed somebody they didn't particularly like. Yeah, you're <laughs> right about that. <laughs> so she got off. Yeah. And started as a sex worker at a resort and met the right people. And set her up. She was able to keep her gifts. And let me uh, 
Let's see some black entrepreneur. Says, um, well, let me let me say this though before uh, I forget. I would like for uh, each person uh, because next Friday is Black Month, so I would like for each person who's uh, listening have somebody that you want to talk about, black person, you know, male, female, child, whatever. And uh, we'll, you know, the one that does the best one, there will be something you can get. So it's going to be uh, really good. Now, on the 16th, the second Friday, that's a special day. And uh, your birthday. I'm sorry. (laughs) Your birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And uh, I will not be on the show. And I doubt, I doubt the person that's speaking now won't be here either. (laughs) But you guys know that. But uh, I would like for each of you to find a black person that you would really want to talk to us about them. So, So what do you guys think? I think I said that at the beginning of the show. Oh, well, we know, we know you said that. I'm waiting for Lucy. <laughs> she hasn't said anything. And uh, hopefully, uh, Margaret will, hopefully. You leave my friend alone. <laughs> <laughs> So do you want to say that next Friday, Lucy? What? Like what? What do you want to do? Can you you understand me? Hmm? Can you understand me? Yeah. Are you you okay? Just a little, you know, tired of my throat and all that. That's about it. Oh, I didn't know what you said. Uh, but you know how to come and talk with us, with somebody that's black? You don't know how. How? It could be a black comic person. Anybody. But you will be getting something. Mm-hmm. For doing that, we got a lot of black people. Okay. Yeah. You know what? You know what? You can talk about yourself. How about that? <laughs> That's an interesting subject. Have <laughs> 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 to put oh, you in this uh, black. So we could laugh. 
Had to put you in this black millionaire conversation. I wish I was there. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, I have to say something. No, I don't. <laughs> but uh, I want you guys to do that. Well, uh, Miss Dorothy said it before we over, even said anything about it. So I know she's ready. That's yeah. So, sorry, Mr. Coleman, you can go ahead. Uh, no, that's fine. I'll uh, finish up with one more um, tonight, and then we can keep it going for uh, Black History Month. But, well, let me ask you, what do you think about that? Oh, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More heads are better than two, so we can um, make it happen. Yeah. So, yeah. So the last somebody I need to know. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to have someone that's dead or something like that. I mean, it could be if that's what you want. But well, I mean, I think I, I think everybody gets the, gets the assignment, you know, come up with someone that we can talk about Black History Month. Right. That's fine. Okay. Okay, back to May. All right, last, <laughs> last story. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> uh, we got the last story is going to be about uh, Annie Turnbull Malone. She was born August 9th, 1877, and passed away May 10th, 1957. And she was an American businesswoman, inventor, and philanthropist. And in the first three decades of the 20th century, she founded and developed a large and prominent commercial and educational enterprise centered on cosmetics for African-American women. So Annie Minerva Turnbow was born in Metropolis, Illinois, the daughter of Robert and Isabella Turnbow, who had formerly been been enslaved. When her father went off to fight for the Union with the 1st Kentucky Cavalry in the Civil War, Isabella took the couple's children and escaped from Kentucky, a neutral border state that maintained slavery. After traveling down the Ohio River, she found refuge in Metropolis, Illinois. Annie Turnbull was born on a farm near Metropolis in Massac County, Illinois, the tenth of eleven children. Orphaned at a young age, she attended a public school in Metropolis before moving in 1896 to live with her older sister, Ada Moody, in Peoria. There, Turnbull attended high school, taking a particular interest in chemistry. However, due to frequent illness, she was forced to withdraw from classes. While out of school, Turnbull grew so fascinated with hair and hair care that she often practiced hairdressing with her sister. With expertise in both chemistry and hair care, Turnbull began to develop her own hair care products. At the time, many women used goose fat, heavy oils, soap, 
or bacon grease to straighten their curls, which damage both scalp and hair. By the beginning of the 1900s, Turbo moved with her older sibling to Lovejoy, now known as Brooklyn, Illinois. While experimenting with hair and different hair care products, she developed and manufactured her own line of non-damaging hair straighteners, special oils, and hair stimulant products for African-American women. She named her new product Wonderful Hair Grower. To promote her new product, Turbo sold the Wonderful Hair Grower in bottles door-to-door. Her products and sales began to revolutionize hair care methods for all African-Americans. In 1902, Turnbull moved to a thriving St. Louis, where she and three employees sold her hair care products door-to-door. As part of her marketing, she gave away free treatments to attract more customers. Due to the high demand for a product in St. Louis, Turbo opened her first shop in 1902 at 2223 Market Street. She also launched a wide advertising campaign in the black press, held news conferences, toured many southern states, and recruited many women whom she trained to sell her products. One of her selling agents, Sarah Breed Love Davis, later known as Madam C.J. Walker, operated first in St. Louis and later in Denver, Colorado, until a a disagreement led Walker to leave the company. Walker allegedly took the original Poro formula and created her own brand of it. This is disputed. This development was one of the reasons which led then Turnbull to copyright her products under the name Poro because of what she called fraudulent imitations and to discourage counterfeit versions. Poro may have received his name from a Mindy word for devotional society, or it may be a combination of the married names of Annie Pope and her sister, Laura Roberts, Poirot. Due to the growth of her business in 1910, Turnbull moved to a larger facility on 3100 Pine Street. In 1918, she established Poirot College. I would say that name is part name from... uh, her married name, Annie Pope, and her sister, Laura Roberts. Poe Rob, She established Poe College, a cosmetology school and center. The building included a manufacturing plant, a retail store where Poe products were sold, business offices, a 500-seat auditorium, dining and meeting rooms, a roof garden, dormitory, gymnasium, bakery, and chapel. It served the African-American community as a center for religious and social functions. The college's curriculum addressed the whole student. Students were coached on personal style for work, on walking, talking, and a style of dress designed to maintain a solid persona. Poirot College employed nearly 200 people in St. Louis. Through its school and franchise businesses, the college created jobs for almost 75,000 women in North and South America, Africa, and the Philippines. Wow, she was major. Her business thrived until 1927 when her husband filed for divorce. Having served as president of the company, he demanded half of the business value based on his claim that his contributions had been integral to its success. <clears throat> the divorce the divorce suit forced Poro College into court order receivership 
with support from her employees and powerful figures such as Mary McLeod Bethune, she negotiated a settlement of $200,000. This affirmed her as the sole owner of Pearl College, and the divorce was granted. She had to pay. Uh, she had to pay her husband two hundred thousand dollars in nineteen twenty-seven. After the divorce, Turnbow moved most of her business to Chicago's South Parkway, now Martin Luther King Jr. Drive, where she bought an entire city block. <laughs> Other lawsuits followed in nineteen thirty-seven during the Great Depression. A former employee filed suit, also claiming credit for poor success. To raise money for the settlement, Turnbull Malone sold her St. Louis property. Although much reduced in size, her business continued to thrive. In 1902, she married Nelson Pope. The couple divorced in 1907. On April 28, 1914, Annie Turnbull married Aaron Eugene Malone, a former teacher and religious book salesman. By the 1920s, Annie Turnbull Malone had become a multimillionaire. In 1924, she paid income tax of nearly 40000 reportedly the highest in Missouri. While extremely wealthy, Malone lived modestly, giving thousands of dollars to the local black YMCA and the Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, D.C. She became a benefactor of the St. Louis Colored Orphans Home, where she served as president on the board of directors from 1914 to 1943. 24 years. With her help, in 1922, the home bought a facility at 2612 Good Avenue, which was renamed Annie Malone Drive in her honor. The Orphans Home is located in the historic Vile or V-I-L-L-E neighborhood upgraded and expanded. The facility was renamed in entrepreneur's honor as the Annie Malone Children and Family Service Center, as well as funding many programs. Turnbull Malone ensured that her employees, all African-American, were paid well and given opportunities for advancement. Turnbull was named an honorary member of the Zeta Phi Beta sorority and was awarded an honorary degree from Howard University. On May 10, 1957, Annie Turnbull suffered a stroke and died at Chicago's Provident Hospital. Childless, she had bequeathed her business and remaining fortune to her nieces and nephews. At the time of her death, her estate was valued at $100,000. St. Louis has an annual Annie Malone Parade in support of children's charities. A fictionalized version of Malone is portrayed by British actress Carmen Ijogo in the 2020 Netflix miniseries Self Made. In this version, the character is renamed Addie Monroe. Turnbull is featured in Bear Max 2019 documentary <laughs> No Lie, an American beauty story that chronicled the rise and decline of the black-owned ethnic beauty industry. Okay, so if you want a, a fictionalized version of uh, Annie Turnbull Malone's story, uh, it's a Netflix series titled Self Made that you could ch- check it out. I'm going to look, uh, have to look that up. Mm-hmm. Well, 
that is it for me. You know, I wanted to, uh, you know, there's a, well, I mean, you know, we could, we could do two more. I mean, you know, unless y'all got something else to do still early. Uh, you know, I was wondering, it was during the time of enslavement, 1841, you know, it was still here, but they allowed them to be millionaires. This is it what I was easy. thinking about. It wasn't easy. You know. It was not easy. Oh, that's sure. something that, yeah. You know, the, some of these yeah. black folks, you know, have, have been killed. The wealth has been stolen. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to talk about O.W. Gurley, born December 25th, 1867, in Huntsville, Alabama. And he died 1935 in Los Angeles, California. Okay, California seemed to be the place to be. Well, O.W. Gurley was once one of the wealthiest black men and a founder of the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known as Black Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah, out of way, W. Gurley was born in Huntsville, Alabama to John and Rosanna Gurley formerly enslaved persons and grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. His mother was a housekeeper. His father was a teamster, wagon driver, at a time when Pine Bluff was entering into a period of massive growth. After attending public school and self-educating, he worked as a teacher and, and in the postal service. While living in Pine Bluff, Gurley married Emma Wells on November 6, 1889, They had no children. In 1893, he came to Oklahoma Territory to participate in the land run of 1893, staking a claim in what would be known as Perry, Oklahoma. The young entrepreneur had just resigned from an appointment under President Grover Cleveland to strike out on his own. In in Perry, he rose quickly, running unsuccessfully for treasurer of Noble County at first, but later becoming principal at the town school and eventually starting and operating a general store for 10 years. Greenwood District. In 1905, Gurley sold his store and land in Prairie and moved with his wife, Emma, to the oil boom town of Tulsa, where he purchased 40 acres of land, which was only to be sold to coloreds. The first law passed in the new state of Oklahoma, 33 days after statehood, set in place a Jim Crow system of legally enforced segregation and required blacks and whites to live in separate areas. However, Oklahoma was considered a significant economic and social opportunity by Gurley. Politician Edward P. McCabe and others leading to the establishment of 50 all-black towns and settlements among the highest of any state or territory. Among Gurley's first businesses was a rooming house, which was located on the dusty trail near the railroad tracks. This road was given the name Greenwood Avenue, named for a city in Mississippi. The area became very popular among black migrants fleeing the oppression in Mississippi. They would find refuge in Gurley's building, as the racial persecution from the South was non-existent on Greenwood Avenue. On the contrary, Greenwood was later dubbed Black Wall Street as it became increasingly self-sustained and catered to upwardly mobile black people. 
Gurley also provided monetary loans to black people wanting to start their own businesses. In addition to his rooming house, Gurley built three two-story buildings and five residences and bought an 80-acre farm in Rogers County. Gurley also founded what is today Vernon AME Church. He also helped build a black Masonic lodge and an employment agency. This implementation of colored segregation set the Greenwood boundaries of separation that still exists. Pine Street to the north, Archer Street, and the Frisco Tracks to the south. Cincinnati Street on the west and Lancet Street on the east. Gurley formed an informal partnership with another black American entrepreneur, J.B. Stratford, who arrived in Tulsa in 1899, and they developed Greenwood in concert. In 1914, Gurley's net worth was reported to be $150,000, about $3 million in 2018 dollars. And he was made a sheriff's deputy by the city of Tulsa to police Greenwood's residence which resulted in some viewing him with suspicion. By 1921, Gurley owned more than 100 properties in Greenwood and had an estimated net value between $500,000 and $1 million, which is between $6.8 million and $13.6 million in 2018 dollars. Gurley's prominence and wealth was short-lived, and his position as a sheriff's deputy did not protect him during the race massacre. In a matter of moments, he lost everything during the race massacre. The Gurley Hotel at 112 North Greenwood, the street's first commercial enterprise, as well as the Gurley's family home, valued at 55000 was lost. And it was, and with it, Brunswick Billiard Parlor and Doc Eastman and Hughes Cafe. Gurley also owned a two-story building at 119 North Greenwood. It housed Carter's Barbershop, Hardy Rooms, a pool hall, and cigar store. All were reduced to ruins by his account and court records. He lost nearly 200000 in the 1921 race massacre. So later in life, because of his leadership role in creating the self-sustaining exclusive black enclave, it has been rumored that Gurley was lynched by a white mob and buried in an unmarked grave. However, according to the memoirs of Greenwood's pioneer, B.C. Franklin, Gurley left Greenwood for Los Angeles, California. Gurley and his wife, Emma, moved to a four-bedroom home in South Los Angeles and ran a small hotel. Gurley died from anterior sclerosis and a cerebral hemorrhage in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. California, on August 6, 1935, at the age of 67. His widow, Emma, passed away three years later in 1938. Gurley was honored in a 2009 documentary film called Before They Die, The Road to Reparations for the 1921 Tulsa Race Riot Survivors. All right. Some people call him the best of Black Wall Street. Back in Forbes, July 2020. So he... uh, he had done a lot. He was a businessman, real estate developer. Yeah. O.W. Gurley. And we'll have to talk more um, about Oklahoma um, in the land run of 1893. I think that that, um, because that, yeah, we- 
wasn't that the all the black people? Um, yeah, well. And they got the burned up? No, that was Black Wall Street. <clears throat> that was Rosewood, where they all got black burned up. Well, Rosewood yeah. was in Florida. Right. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the... Um, because it was bombed, yeah. They dropped the bomb on this place. That's what I understand. Well, they dropped the bomb on Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, Black Wall Street. They dropped yeah. the bomb. Go ahead. No, what'd you say? No, I was just going to say some people in Detroit was asking for um, where they could have a uh, reparation. Well, for the black folks, reparations, an area, and they didn't, they didn't let them do it. You talking about Greek town and Mexican town? They want an African town. Yeah, right. They wouldn't let anybody have uh, black. They told them no, and I haven't heard because we're consumers. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think they asked anymore. Well, right now, they, where they had Black Bottom, they're rebuilding it. They had what? Mm-hmm. Where Black Bottom was, they're rebuilding oh. it. We made that. I mean, what I'm saying is they we call it that, but uh, they didn't give us anything. Like that. Well, they ain't gonna give us nothing. Interesting. Hmm. I say they're not going to give us anything. We have to. I'm. Isn't that crazy? But everybody else can have one. Well, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it is what it what it is. I mean, you know, this is the history of the United States, and so you know, that's just like right now with Texas. Texans governor sending all these immigrants to New York and Chicago. You know, the people in Chicago having problems with their mayor because, you know, I guess he's finding, you know, housing and places to to house these people when, you know, the residents are complaining that, hey, you know, our homeless people still on the street. And you got all these, you know, these immigrants that, you know, you're taking care of. That's a problem. You need to get our people off the street. You know, <laughs> so they're talking about, you know, Democratic Convention coming to, you know, Illinois. They say it's going to be a problem. Well, you know, we ain't, we ain't happy with, with what's going on. And then with America, you know, supporting this bombing in Israel, you know, bombing uh, Pal- the Palestinians. It's, uh, you know, Joe Biden's got, you know, he, he, he got a hard road to climb. You know, you got that and, right. Yeah. You really got that. Right. So, yeah. you know, it's a lot going on. But, um, yeah, we'll talk about the land run of 1893, you know, also known as the Cherokee Outlet Opening or the Cherokee Strip Land Run. 
which marked the opening to settlement of the Cherokee outlet in the Oklahoma's territory, fourth and largest land run. Uh, it was part of what would later become the U.S. state of Oklahoma in 1907. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of people that uh, got land down there, 160 acres. You know, they were giving black people, you know, the rockiest land that they couldn't use for farming. But uh, they didn't know there was oil up under that land. So a lot of uh, black people became rich just based on those oil rights, uh, just like Sarah Rector, which, you know, at one point was the uh, richest black uh, young girl in uh, America. And so, you know, uh, the richest black girl in America. And well, tried. I'm going to be rich, too. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> I got real quiet. <laughs> oh, we just said, okay. Yeah. Yeah, but it took you two seconds. <laughs> yeah, Sarah So we, uh, yeah, she was born in 1902 in Indian Territory. Uh, she was a, an American oil magnet. All right. Well, yeah. good for her. And don't yeah. forget, next week, don't forget your black person that you want to talk to. It doesn't have to be old, middle, or young. So All right. Well, yeah. You have any final words, mm-hmm. uh, Jenny White? You'd like to send us off with? Well, what what they have to say before I I say my little thing, Miss Dorothy. Um, have a good weekend, everybody. <laughs> Go Lions. <laughs> Most definitely. Go oh, Lions. My <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, Lucy. The same here. <laughs> have a prosperous weekend and a right. restful one. Coleman. Uh, I have nothing else to say. Huh? Yeah, it was Go a lot. Lions. It was a lot said, Right, go he, he said a lot. He's educated me tonight. Oh, yeah, that's okay. a lot. Yeah, we have some. We have a lot on the ball. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good thing. Well, what I have to say is, be careful who you tell your problems to. Only a few people actually care. The rest just want something to gossip about. So, <laughs> Well, those are facts. Right. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Good night. Talk Thanks so much. Next Friday, All right, guys. Good night. Good night. Thanks All so much. Right. All right, Jenny White. Good night, Margaret. Good evening. <laughs> All right, Jenny White. Thank you, you want to take us out with some music? The second. Federetta. Federetta. All right. Good night. See you guys. All right. Bye,
Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.